Welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a Sports Ethos production, where we look at the Seahawks from every angle, every week. I'm your host, Candace Hagens, and it's always a pleasure and it's a privilege to talk Hawks with you. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one who remembers, but y'all remember that movie way back, Men in Black? I'm sure y'all remember that, where Will Smith would just walk up and put the, the neuralizer in front of you and just wipe your memory. Yeah. Well, that's about how I'm feeling about that Seahawks game. It was just a game. I just wanted a memory wipe. Just wanted a memory wipe. And it's not because I feel like that game was a one-off or because, you know, I felt like the Germany game was more of a one-off or what have you. I'm not, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's the case. The issues that were in this game have been issues that have been, you know, the case for some time now. The run defense has been an issue for some time now. Though, I'm not going to say the run game has been an issue for some time. It's been an issue the past two games, but that's a trend. And so, again, I'm not saying wipe the memory because I don't believe anything in this game is relevant. It's not one of those games. I'm saying wipe the memory because despite all of those things, despite the run game issues, despite the offensive inconsistency at times, especially in regards to the run game, despite all of those things, the Seahawks were in prime position to win that game. And it was a series of errors, whether it be two calls that I feel like dramatically shifted the the momentum of the team in terms of the fumble but um, Josh Jacobs and the DK Metcalf catch that was overturned? Question mark, question mark. Either way, and I'm not saying that this game is on those calls. That's not what I'm saying. There were other issues that really could have avoided those situations being so critical anyway. And so that's not why the team lost. But it was a major factor. But even then, guess what? It still went into overtime, but instead of Ryan Neal on the back end to, at the end of the game, there was Josh. There was Josh Jones, and well, he ultimately gave up a sixty, a eighty-six yard touchdown for the Raiders to win it. And I think if that's literally anybody else, <laughs> um, Neal or probably even Joey Blunt could have done a better job than that. Then. It's not an issue. And so because of that, we'll talk about the takeaways from the game. I will. But I'm not going to harp on it too much. I, I, I want to, you know, talk, discuss a few observations. But the reality is this team is young and they're playing young players. And they'll need those experiences moving forward. Right, because I think there were just young moments and slash lack of talent moments that I think would make a big difference if, if they were in the same situation again. Somehow I feel like they could pull it out because it was just that kind of comedy of errors, you know, mistake here, mistake there that just comes down to inexperience. I mean, even DK. I mean, I don't I don't blame DK at all. I really felt like he was in possession of that ball, but. I think it's a learning experience for him, right? On how 
the game can potentially be called. And that experience will help this team be better because DK is still young. I know he's on, he's not even, his second contract hadn't kicked in yet. He's still on the rookie deal. And all those things matter a great deal. So let's talk about the game. Um, the Seahawks, as you all know, uh, lost in overtime 40 to 34. Now, you know, did throw for 328 yards. And he had two touchdowns, one interception. Uh, not a great QBR rating of 41.1. Uh, Kenneth Walker struggled to run in this game. Only had 26 yards on 14 carries, so he struggled. And that was a big factor as well. I mean, they really need Kenneth Walker or a running back in general to get going. I mean, any offense does. I mean, you can't do it on the pass alone as the Bucks who were effectively able to run on us somehow because of the defense. But the, some takeaways I have from this game. One, I was pretty impressed. If you look on PFF's, um, if you look on the PFF scores, I liked, I'll say this, I, I, I was happy with the top five defensive players. I was happy to see Quandre Diggs um, lead the defense in, in his grade, he had a really good game, two interceptions that were critical in keeping the Seahawks even in this game because, quite honestly, as bad as that defense was, they should have been blown out because it was just that bad. But because of Quandre, he he graded at 86.4. Um, so really happy to see him start to get some rhythm and hope it's a sign of things to come. We'll talk more about that later. Al Woods being as sturdy as ever, he graded out at a 71.7. You like seeing um, Ryan Neal also being in the top five on defense with 69.6. He played a pretty pretty good game. I think you saw just how impactful he is on this field when you see Josh Jones come in. His impact is felt, and he had a pretty good game all around. And Tariq Woolen, who just continues to be such a huge advantage to this Seahawks team, uh, a rookie being able to take away half of the field for the opposing offense is insane. And we'll come back and we'll talk more about him too. But he posted a 66.6. And then I was pleased to see Boye Mafe, who had a pretty balanced game. And he graded out at 69.6. You would have loved to see more pass rush from him. But hey, right now, he's doing better than Daryl Taylor, unfortunately. <laughs> he's doing better than Daryl Taylor at this point. And... Bruce Irvin tied with Boye Mafe for that same score. They had the same PFF grade. And what I'm excited most about was an honorable mention. He wasn't in the top five, but he, he played well, and it's worth mentioning. And then PFF graded him accordingly. And that's Trey Brown, who graded out at having a 62.1. And that's notable because Michael Jackson had a Pretty rough game. Yeah, it's, I'm just be honest. He had his bad game. He had a bad game. Uh, Michael Jackson scored a 43.4, and he deserved every bit of that. Um, he let Devontae Adams get easy, easy out routes to get conversions, and he just was playing off 20 yards. And he looked very Trey Flowers esque, and you sure hate to see that. And I think it, it's a sign of things to come that play, that Trey Brown will be able to. I think, overtake Michael Jackson. Now, he probably won in this next game, but I was really excited in his few snaps that he seems to be picking up, 
picking up where he left off his rookie year when he had very solid performance. And I think Trey Brown is exactly the type of cornerback that you need playing alongside uh, uh, Tariq Woolen because you need a cornerback who can take advantage of only having one side of the field. You, you need that. I mean, I, I'll talk more about that here, but those are just notable things. It's also notable just to emphasize how bad Josh Jones was. He only played 10 snaps at free safety and yet somehow graded a team low 33.8. And like I said, deserved every bit of it. He was atrocious in his few opportunities that he received. And like I said, all in all this game, yes, the run defense is atrocious. It is. There's nothing that can be done about it. Will I think it's inconsistent. I think you'll see games where it's better. I think you'll see games where it's just as bad. Uh, hopefully not just this bad. This was historically bad as Josh Jacobs recorded a whopping 229 yards. Now, he wouldn't have had that many yards if it wasn't for that 86-yard run. So let's keep some perspective on that. But that should never have happened at all. And the fact that they did speaks to, I feel, really a talent issue. I, I really truly feel like it comes down to the defensive line not fitting the new scheme that they want to do. And while the Seahawks found a formula temporarily to combat that, I think it's still an issue. Now, I would argue that the formula that they that worked when it was going well, they're not using. They're not doing as many of those bare front looks that were more successful before. They're still they're going back to the more where the, the defensive linemen have to guard a gap and a half, and they don't play well like that. I'll talk more about that later as well, but I think it's obvious that that some of the things they don't that some of the things that haven't worked they continue to do, and I would say that's a really big part of what you're seeing. And like that's why I say I think you'll see games where they look better, but I think it's going to come down to the fact that they're just going to look inconsistent until they get talent that fits the scheme. So for all those who feel like the Seahawks should go back to the 4-3, let me tell you, the Seahawks had a historically bad defense when they were in the 4-3, and they had personnel that matched the scheme. So to be honest, I know it's not fun to watch. I know it's frustrating, but I'd rather I'd rather be where we where the team is right now. I'd rather them be in a position where they're changing over a new scheme. They have some personnel that fits the scheme, and they have some that don't. And when you're mismatched like that, it's not going to come together and look great. It's going to be inconsistent, which is what it is now. I think that you've seen flashes, which is exactly what you want to see, but you can't expect it to hold up from game to game simply because the reality is these players don't fit the scheme and you would hate for the Seahawks to fool themselves into thinking that they do to pay those guys. Now, they did pay Brian Monet, but he they can get off that money very easily. So they paid him, but he can easily not see any of that money. So you'd hate for them to connect, the, connect themselves to these guys on the false hope that they can stick. I think the Seahawks know that they need to build that defensive line. It is fairly obvious. And I'd rather them know, I'd rather see flashes to know that this scheme can work 
and, and have optimism than to not, right? And then for, for them to have never seen anything positive and, or it, I think it was worse to, to know that all these players fit the 4-3, like, right, you had Brian, you had, not Brian, I'm sorry, you had Bobby Wagner, you had KJ Wright, you had these incredible players, at least that have passed their prime. Granted, Jamal Adams and Quandre Diggs, these great names, all of which fit the scheme in theory, but none of them do, but none of them play well, right? What are the answers to that? What are the answers to a very flawed scheme that the league has figured out and that this team can't properly coach? So I know some people want to move back to the 4-3. It's, we're, we're too late in the year to be talking about reversing whole schemes. Next year, they should build on what they have. It really comes down to personnel, in my opinion. I don't even feel like you can properly evaluate the scheme until person until they have the proper personnel. And you might critique, why well, why didn't they get the proper personnel? Well, they've started. Uchenna is a he's definitely a pure three four. Shelby Harris, pure three floor four. He, he that's what he operates in. Boye Mafe is a pure, pure three four. And I, I think Al Woods is adaptable. He's experienced. He can do both. Uh, Bruce Irvin is also three four. He fits. I think he works better in a 3-4 scheme. I'd, I'd argue over 4-3, he can do both, but he's more effective in the 3-4 system. And so they did find some guys, but the reality is that especially with the dead cap hit that Russell Wilson left on his team, there was only going to be so much they can do in one offseason to fix this team, period. And so I, I, that's another reason why I go down back to the memory wipe, right? This is just a game where it comes down to talent. And yes, Coaching was a part, and that is a factor. I won't deny that. But it's even hard to it's even hard to truly grade the coaching when they just don't have the people there to for the coach to do what they need to do. I I'd I'd, I'd liken it to Shane Waldron and his offensive line. I mean, they just didn't have the offensive personnel to do what they wanted to do. They didn't have mobile tackles. Now you can better see where they're trying to go and you can see the promise in it. Is it perfect? No. And it shouldn't be. He's still a very, this is his second year calling games. And sometimes there are, you see, errors in his in his play calling. But you've also seen extreme promise. And you've seen him show the potential to grow. Same thing I believe you'll see with Clint Hurt next year. You say, is the defensive line coach? Why is the defensive line bad? Well, they didn't give him any resources. They gave him used goods. Who on that defensive line, other than Shelby Harris, who is by far their best defensive lineman, who else was, what else did he have to work with? I'd argue not much. So, all that aside, the only, the other takeaway outside, like I guess I want to take everything else off the table. The only other takeaway I want to pull from this game is Gino. So let's talk about Gino. Now, Gino had high highs and low lows. Gino had a tough fumble, uh, had a tough fumble, he had an interception, and he had some throws that could have easily been intercepted. And I, I don't think all of those were on him. Some of them I think he was just giving this guy's chance and I think DK has to run better routes and be more aggressive. Um especially I, I think in particular to the throw 
um, into the end zone, into the yeah, into the end zone that was almost picked off by a Raiders defender. DK really didn't even try. He was pretty lackluster in trying to get that ball. And you can see Geno motion to DK go up and get that. Like he wants him to go. He's giving him. He's basically giving him where only his guy should be able to get it. But it requires DK to attempt to go get. It. I mean. It should be for only his guy, but his guy has to go get the ball. And if he doesn't, then the defender will, which is exactly what almost happened there. And I don't I don't want it to be mistaken. I'm not saying that Geno lost in this game because he did not. This run defense lost in the game. No run game lost in the game. But, or I take run defense on both sides, rather, both on defense and offense, is really what lost this game ultimately and when you put up 34 points, it should be enough. So I'm not blaming Gino for the loss. And I'm not saying Gino is trash. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that you see the flaws in Gino. And I've touched on this before, that I think it is a mistake to commit long-term to Gino because he has his limitations. And, and that's all you saw. You saw that even when he's not having a good game, it's still a good game, right? Like, it's not a bad game. He's a quality starter. I think he's proven that. I don't really have questions about if he's a starter or if he can be a starter. He can, But he does have limitations. You see those clearly. I think you saw the absolute best of Geno to start the year. Can he finish the year like that? I don't know. Um, can he have more games like that to end the year? We'll see. But even if he does, you're never going to get any better than that. And if you're never going to get any better than that, do you, do you feel confident that Geno can, in a Super Bowl, beat Patrick Mahomes, beat Justin Herbert, beat Joe Burrow? And if you don't, and I don't, then why commit so much, so many long-term resources, you know, 30 plus million dollars, even if it is cheaper than a normal quarterback will cost. And you, and you, you could say, well, then you can build a better roster around him. But the reality is sometimes it's just got to be on the quarterback. And I think especially coming from an era where for the past five to six years of the Russell Wilson era, this team has been a first or second round exit always. Always a ceiling. They're finally in the position to rebuild and elevate the ceiling of the team. Better than ever. And to settle for what's more likely to be first and second round exits than a Super Bowl win, just realistically, I think is a mistake. Now, that's not to say that the best thing is to let Gino walk. Now, I do feel like the best thing might be to let Gino walk. But I understand the argument against that. He is playing well. But here's here's my solution. Here's what I, here, I, I've thought about it. I've tossed it over. And here's ultimately what I come down to. The best thing to do with Gino is to non-exclusive franchise tag. And do the non-exclusive franchise tag on Gino. Here's what that means. That means that the Seahawks would 
would keep Geno Smith for another year, but another team could match the offer. So the it it, it cost thirty one million dollars. It's the estimated projection to franchise to not to do a non exclusive franchise tag on Geno. What that means is another team can match that thirty one million dollars, and if that's and if the Seahawks can decide do they want to. They want to pay whatever the other team is willing to pay, or do they not? And let's say they decide they don't want to pay that, they get first. They get two first round picks. That'd be huge. They give the Seahawks four first round picks. That's incredible. And so, I think that that's their best move, to be honest. Because here's why: it it lets Geno see his market, right? If a team is willing to pay more than that, or if a team is willing to give up two first-round picks for him, then that's his market, right? If they're willing to give that, they're willing to give that up potentially, or if they're willing to pay forty million for Geno's services, or thirty-five million for Geno's services, then Geno still gets to kind of explore the market in that way, right? He still gets to find out how how much teams are willing to pay for him. And I think it will make him less resentful in terms of coming back one more year. Given that it's fully guaranteed and that's more money than he's ever seen. And he's still getting another chance, you know, play well, get another shot, right? And it prevents the Seahawks from being stuck for in a, a three-year deal when I don't think Geno's going to win you a Super Bowl in those three years. I just don't. I don't. I don't think he's a Super Bowl winning quarterback, even with a great roster. I'm not sure that in the biggest moments in the playoffs, they can get you a lot of regular season wins, but in the playoffs, I'm not sure how far he can take you. There's limits there. So that's my advice to the Seahawks. I don't think they'll do it. I think they'll probably position themselves maybe for maybe to pay them. Now, we'll see. These games may change the Seahawks' mind about their their plans. Now, along with the franchise tag, I do think they should draft another quarterback in the draft. Now, it doesn't have to be a first-round pick. I know the defense is a priority. I felt that maybe they should get one of those quarterbacks, but this quarterback class doesn't look as great as it was hyped up to be. And so, get your third-rounder. Fourth rounder, get you another guy who can come in and compete with Drew Locke and Geno Smith, learn, grow, and see see what Geno can do for another year. You'll learn a lot about whether he's worth extending or not, whether he can, whether this is legitimate or if it's just a fluke year. You find out, and that'd be huge. Maybe Geno would prove that he can be the best of the best. Well, then. Trade the other quarterback or keep him on keep him as a backup. Like Geno learned. Under Geno spent years as a backup. Keep the rookie there too. You never know. You need injury. You need injury insurance, of course. And he have uh, that guy would have upside, right? And I know you could argue, well, the price will go up. If Geno does prove that he can fight or go up against Mahomes or or Justin Herbert, if he proves he can win in the playoffs, if he proves he can take you all the way, then you got to pay more money. Well, 
I think the the I think not tying yourself to a contract that could potentially set your franchise back years, it's worth paying the extra what maybe five million or what have you that you know, because he's not still an older quarterback at the end of the day. So he's not gonna command forty-five million dollars even if he balls out because he's older. That's just the reality of it. That's a negotiation tactic that you can use. And I think that that Gino would have some loyalty to the Seahawks at that point. So I don't. I think he'd still get somewhere in the thirty million dollar range, regardless. I mean, maybe it saves you five million per like or something. Like it saves you some money. But I just you can set your franchise back by jumping the gun early, trying to foresee it, and that's exactly what the Broncos did with Russ. Yeah. It's not the exact same thing because you've seen Gino play, but I'm just saying decisions like that. Sometimes it's worth it to pay that extra cost to be sure that this is the guy that you want. I mean, that's essentially what the what the Seahawks did with Jamal Adams. They wanted to see him in the system for a year before they paid him. And while I know people, some people don't like that, I understood the move and I agreed with it because you can't risk attaching a huge contract to a guy and you don't know if he's the guy. If you got questions, err on the side of caution, Always, it is a mistake to pay question marks, period. Okay, I said I wasn't going to talk about that game that long, and I spent more time talking about at least, I think, the trends of that game than I expected. So let's move on. That's over. The Seahawks play the Rams tomorrow as of my recording of this podcast. And it'll be a more interesting matchup than ever before because the Rams have absolutely collapsed. They were... They are the defending Super Bowl champions, but they are 3-8. They have been injury-riddled, and even before they were injury-riddled, they just weren't playing well together as a team. Their off-season acquisitions of Bobby Wagner and Allen Robinson has not been able to save the organization. They lack depth, and the Rams have been, I feel, one of the most lucky teams in terms of injury history for years. Honestly, they've been top heavy for a long time with no depth. Probably now more than probably their depth is lower, is less now than they've ever had. But I've argued that they've been top heavy for at least the past two or three years. And they just so happened that nobody ever got injured. But now Cooper Cup is injured. Matt Stafford is injured. Aaron Donald, Seahawks record has for years tortured the Seahawks and he won't be playing in this game and even though it's in SoFi Stadium the Seahawks on paper and really in every way should win this game given the context now will they now that's an interesting question so let's talk about some matchups this will probably be the quickest matchup discussion you've ever heard on this show Here's what it comes down to me. The Rams are so injured that it's really not about personnel matchups. Here's the matchups I want to see. McFay versus Carroll. It is all about coaching. Because if McFay is able to get away schematically with the things that he's been able to get away with schematically before, then it won't matter how injured the Rams are 
Van Jefferson will have a career game against us because of those flood zone concepts. Flood zone concepts, what they are, they, they put a lot of pressure on the linebackers, particularly the Seahawks linebackers, because the Seahawks linebackers have trouble in coverage, particularly Jordan Brooks, Brooks and it was Bobby Wagner. And because of that, it allows wide open, they, they basically expose the zone. Seahawks run a zone defense, and with the flood, the flood zone concepts allow for us one player after the other to flood those zones coming out of one zone into the other, and it forces the defense to have to communicate in such a way, in such a fast fashion, that it really puts the offense at an advantage. And like I said, puts you get you got linebackers on wide receivers all the time, and it's just not an ideal matchup. So Carroll needs to absolutely change the scheme. If he does that, not win this game. Now, the Seahawks have done a better job of defending the Rams as of late, but it's going to come down to matchups. So, in my opinion, there are four keys to victory to this game. Well, let's talk about the keys to victory. Number one, stop the wide line, the wide nine alignment. That's the three downmen, the three downmen concept I've talked about before where it just teams can run all through them it's unsuccessful every single time they run it it frustrates me that they continue to run it it does not work stop it they ran it against the Rams way too much and guess what the Rams were the Raiders I'm sorry the Raiders were successful every time they ran against that the Bucks were successful every time they every time they put that formation in Stop that. If they can do that, heck, I think they can win the game. Because guess what? When they're not in that alignment, they have successful run defense. That's huge. Two, I think they need to play man coverage. Tariq Woolen is a beast. The Rams don't have anybody who scares you in terms of taking the top off the defense. There is no one. So play them up, man to man. Play press coverage. Make it harder on the backup quarterback. Don't have the zone wide open. There's no reason for that. You're not going to get beat over the top. Not with Tariq's speed. And if you're going to play as Trey, John, Trey Brown, then you don't have to worry about it with Trey Brown either. He's going to be able to stay on top. He's got a really good knack about staying on top of receivers and being there. He's really good in playing aggressive. He's his best when he's playing in man coverage, in my opinion, actually. He can play zone well. But he, he plays man as well, too. Now, he's smaller, and I understand that, and some wide receivers be able to take advantage of it, but not enough. He's got great instincts, good speed, and he will contest and make it difficult for the, for the, for the offense. And I think they need as much cover sacks as they can get. This team is having trouble with pass rush as it is. I didn't talk about that much, but they are having trouble with pass rush as it is. And if you're covering guys up and there's not zones where quarterbacks can sit back and figure that out, you got some coverage, some some tight coverage, maybe you get a sack or two on the quarterback, you know? And so that's gonna be key. Uh, I mentioned it puts it put the zones, put Jordan back, Jordan Brooks in a bad place, and you know that this team is aiming to take advantage of your zone scheme. Catch them off guard. 
Shut the suckers down. Don't leave a wide. Don't leave an opportunity wide open. Play man coverage. Key three, play Trey Brown. Now, I'm not saying you can't start Michael Jackson. I think he will hold up, especially against this wide receiver crew as well. But I think maybe a split reps. I mean, I think that much. I think maybe you start Michael Jackson in the first quarter, let Trey Brown play the second and third. And then if you want to close it out with Michael Jackson, do so. Or close it out with whoever is playing better. But I think it's about time to get closer to splitting reps. Now, they may not do that, but I just want to see Trey Brown continue to build back up and get his feet wet because I think he's the guy that the higher upside. You know, he'll be on this team. He's a guy that you want to develop for sure. And I think he's, I think he's better than Michael Jackson, period. He's more aggressive. He's quicker, and he'll be able to take advantage of Tariq's ability to take away a whole field more than Michael Jackson can, obviously. The Raiders game told us that for sure. And then fourth, in terms of offense, the team just needs to run more play action. I think they need to run play action with the intention to pass first to open up the run because this O-line right now is currently constructed, especially with Austin Blythe in the middle, struggles with run, struggles with run blocking. They, they don't do it well. They, they are terrible at it. And that puts Ken Walker at a disadvantage. So take advantage of Ken Walker in the receiving game. Get him going that way. Get them expecting that. Catch them off guard. Make them hesitate a little bit and use that hesitation to then Run it in between the tackles. Run it outside. Uh, outside pitches. That kind of thing. Those kind of concepts. That's the best strategy, in my opinion, for the Seahawks to win this game. There, I'm not doing three reasons to cheer and three reasons to fear. Because quite frankly, and I'm, this is going to sound arrogant, but there aren't three reasons the Seahawks should lose this game. There's one, and that's coaching. Or, like, knock on wood. A catastrophe of injuries. <laughs> That's it. Those are the only ways that they should lose this game. I don't care that they're a SoFi Stadium. So, the last thing I want to do, guys, before we wrap up with this episode, um, it's been a minute since I've done Seahawks superlative. So, I thought I'd just bring those back up, discuss that as we head into the next game against the Rams. Um, it's definitely an exciting matchup. So. I think it'd be appropriate. It's been a while to bring this back. So, on my list of most likely to succeed in this next game against the Rams, do you know Smith? I feel like he's due for a bounce back. He struggled in the last game. He struggled in some ways, right, in terms of not having good accuracy on deep throws, in terms of putting the ball in harm's way. I think he's almost being too confident sometimes. Um, maybe we see him dial that back a little bit be more sure in his decisions so he can win this game um I, I think that he may or may I don't know if we'll see him run more because I know Pete doesn't like that but I think you just see a better Geno a more elite Geno I know he threw for 300 yards but like I said the turnover worthy plays definitely affected this game and I think you see less of those in the next game I think he bounces back Quandre Diggs also is primed to show off. He's starting to get in the rhythm. He had an excellent game last game, two interceptions. He's got a history of getting pick sixes against the Rams um, or interceptions against the Rams. And the backup, the quarterback situation with the Rams is 
not good. Matt Stafford's not playing. So whoever they play, Quandre is in prime position to pick him off. So he's in the best position to succeed. Most likely to be benched, in my opinion, is Bill Haynes on offense. Um, for sure, he struggled. He he only had he had 26 snaps. Him and Gabe Jackson have been alternating, and he had a 45.5 run run grade by PFF. He struggled. He had a 73.6 pass grade. I mean, he's great in the pass blocking, but in the run blocking, it's so bad. And I say he's going to get benched, or at least maybe his snaps get significantly reduced because this team is trying to get the run game back. And if he's that much of a liability in the run game, it's really hard to start him. It's really hard to play him consistent snaps because you can't only put him in at passing downs because then it'll be a dead giveaway to the the defense that there's a pass if you see Phil Haynes. You can't do that, but you can't really afford to have him contribute to the run game. So I... I think Phil Haynes is working towards benching himself. He's, I think he's okay. He's inconsistent. I think he's had bright moments, but you can't, you can't start, and if you can't give that many snaps to an offensive line to an offensive lineman who's so inconsistent. And on defense, most likely to be benched is Josh Jones. I don't really think I need to say anything more than that, so I won't. Moving on, most improved. Marquise Goodwin. Shout out Marquise Goodwin. You know, he really has become a reliable third down, uh, third receiver. He's been great on third down. He's had some clutch moments for the team. He's not giving you a ton of production, but he doesn't have to. That's not his job. His job is to be there um, when Tyler Lockett and DK aren't available and, and be consistent. And he has done well. He's really grown. In his role, he went from really a non-factor to being a huge part of, again, the Seahawks being in this game against the Raiders. So I just want to – I think he's improving greatly, and I definitely want to shout him out. He was the highest, greatest rated – he was the highest graded player on offense um, for the Seahawks, and deservedly so. And then on defense, Quandre Diggs is also – most improved because Quandre has struggled in his highest games at this point had been week two against the 49ers. He had a 71.9 in that game, but he's had missed tackles consistently. He's been in poor positioning. He's, he's just really not been a factor at all. Most of the year he's not been terrible, but he's just not helped your team win. He's been closer to the problem than the solution. And he's, like I said, he's not been terrible, it's, but it had been a down year for him. And here he is, the highest graded defender on the team. And that's huge improvement, improvement for him this season. So I'm excited to see that. And then finally, the award for best all around, I believe, goes to Marquise Goodwin again. Because... You know, I struggle between him and Travis Homer, who also had a really excellent game. But Travis Homer is a running back, and statistically, he did not put up good production. I mean, he had eight yards on two carries, which isn't great. He was using the receiving game, and he helped in that manner. But And he helped more in that manner. But I think that given Marquise Goodwin is a receiver, and he gave product- more production on that end, as well as a seven-yard run, I, I give it to Marquise Goodwin. Um, in terms of best all-around performance, he he given his role, he played it the best. 
DK was close, but you know, and I think DK would have got it had he got awarded the opportunity. I would say I would have given maybe it to to DK. Had he well, he struggled in, in in not being aggressive. Even if he had a caught that catch or they had given him that catch, I still think that there were some opportunities, like I said, for him to be more aggressive as a receiver, go up and get the ball, you know, use his size and and be willing to high point more often. So, I mean, your quarterback's trusting you. It's something he used to complain about with Russ. Man, take advantage of Gino, who seems to be confident and giving you those opportunities. And so that's why it's not DK, even though he was the best, probably, I would say, in terms of production um, on offense. And best all-around on defense, finally, goes to Tariq Woolen. Tariq Woolen is absolutely killing the game. And, yes, he did a lot. He, he allowed a... 20-yard reception against uh, Hollins on the Raiders, but I don't care. First of all, nobody was really best all around on defense, but for a rookie to take away the field the way he does is incredible. I think it took Sherman a couple of years before even before he was taking away whole defenses. Well, if you look at the passing chart for Derek Carr, he didn't throw anywhere near Tariq Woolen's direction. In fact, Devontae Adams only ran one route even close to where Tariq Woolen would be. And that's just such a sign. It's so monumental that despite the 20-yard gain that he gave up, which isn't a lot, but, you know, despite that, that fact against Devontae Adams, the best wide receiver in the league, one of them, PFF sure says the best. That speaks so much for the respect level he's getting from his teammate, if not from his peers and coaches, for the one of the best talents in this league to say, yeah, no, not that guy. <laughs> for them not, I not even trust him a time or two to, so, you know, I can see, you know, them chase taking a chance and throwing throwing once or twice towards Tariq. And they did not. Not with not not with Adams. They stayed far away from that. And that says a lot, man. So there are some concerns. There are. I'd be I'd be lying to you guys if I said there weren't. There are. But there are also, I think, some things to be positive about, some things to be encouraged about. I just think that you got to get through this through this year. There's still a bright future for this team. They just got to get some personnel decisions right, and they do. This offseason is really important for them, almost as important as this past one was, um, but not not quite. Maybe not quite as important, but I'd say a strong close second in terms of the ceiling of what this team can be moving forward. But in the meantime, let's just watch this matchup against the Rams. It'll be an interesting one in terms of learning about our Seahawks for for sure. We'll learn a lot about this about this team one way or the other, win or loss. And we'll be able to make evaluations on the future from there. So in the meantime, be sure to follow me on Twitter at CandaceH901. That's CandaceH901. You can follow the show at Ethos Seahawks. We encourage you to do so. Um, we're going to get back into uh, posting the polls and getting you guys' thoughts on um, maybe I could probably get into some draft content. So I'd like to get some feedback from you guys on your thoughts on that. 
And that's all the time we have time. That's all that we have time for today, folks. That's it. I'm out. As always, go Hawks.